Who are Formula One's biggest nearly men? From one-time winners to nearly champions, we're here to discuss and analyse these world-class professional drivers from our armchairs. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Grid Talk podcast. This is episode 212. My name is Tom Horrocks and today on F1 Firesides, I have with me a a one-on-one chat with fellow Grid Talker, Aaron Harper from Five Red Lights. Hello, Aaron. Hey then, Tom. Nice to be here tonight. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, we're still buzzing after a brilliant British Grand Prix, which uh, which has just happened and uh, the fallout is, is still happening. So we're just debating this ready to, to air on Wednesday. So if there's been any other nearly men in Formula One in the next four days, then don't come at us. We weren't aware. So this episode started as a, a kind of a Twitter conversation between myself and you, didn't didn't it? It was about Verstappen's 150 career races so far. And, and we had a bit of a debate about the, uh, the early 2000s and... Uh, and so we thought we'd bring the debate to you. But what was the kind of the basis of our conversation, Aaron? Do you remember? So there was a tweet about the stats of the first 150 races comparing Lewis Hamilton's record for wins and pole positions and podiums to Max Verstappen's. And they're fairly similar, but Lewis has got slightly better numbers. So read into that what you will and make your own interpretations. And so it sort of led us down the path of comparing the two and then eventually comparing drivers who could have been up there and we ended up with the the nearly men conversation. So we'll touch on a few of them today and we're going to try and work out whether they're fairly rated, overrated or undervalued as former F1 drivers. Yeah, but before we start that, we just uh, want you to pause this podcast and go and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, as that really helps us climb the ratings. And leave us a review as well if you're able, and we will give you a shout-out on the next show. And as well as these fireside chats, we do live previews, reviews, and analysis of every race weekend live on YouTube. This one isn't live today, but uh, normally we're out live and we we, we engage in the the chat comments as well. Uh, And we also put out an audio version on all audio platforms as well so just search for f1 chronicle or go to f1chronicle.com to find out more so we selected 10 drivers as we've already said uh, to talk about to be considered nearly men and the criteria is raced in the 2000s uh, won a race didn't win a title and no longer racing in formula one and there are a couple of people on this list who are still racing just not in formula one although one was on the grid very recently so you can uh, figure out who that was but we're going to start off by handing over to you aaron and you're going to talk about the guy who sparked this debate in the first place 269 grand prix starts 11 wins 2008 championship runner-up and no he wasn't champion for 30 seconds despite what people like to say we're going to talk about felipe massa so tell us tell us about massa so he raced for Ferrari and he raced for Sauber. And like you said, with the 11 wins, he also took 41 podiums and 16 pole positions. Now, I've noted down a few of his notable teammates because Felipe was also teammates with three former world champion or three world champions in Michael Schumacher, Kimi Raikkonen, and Fernando Alonso. And he was also partnered with Valtteri Bottas, which when you come back to look at Bottas's career, once he moves on, he may also join this list. So obviously, given our criteria, he can't make the list because he's a current driver. And, you know, if Alfa Romeo produced the car of all cars in 2023, he could still become world champion and get himself off this list. So we're going to keep uh, with, Felipe, with Felipe Massa. And his career was a bit of a slow burner. And then mm. it, it really caught light. And then it it took a, a bit of a nosedive after the accident in Hungary in 2009. But he had a bit of a reputation as a very fast driver at Sauber, but there was an element of unpredictability to what he was doing. And when he joined Ferrari in 2006, 
it wasn't until they went to the Nürburgring and they put Rob Smedley as his engineer that they truly unlocked his performance and they found something and it turned him into a race winner that year. And of course, he was always going to play second fiddle to Schumacher, but that wasn't the reason he was there. It was because Schumacher was moving on. They needed someone to learn from Schumacher and, and take the baton. Similar to how uh, Mercedes are doing things now with George Russell and Lewis Hamilton hmm. to an extent. So they gave Massa the learnings and what did they do? They partnered him with probably the fastest driver of the last three years at that point, which was Kimi Raikkonen, even though he hadn't won a world championship. Kimi wins the 2007 championship, but Massa also wins some races. And then Felipe's time comes in 2008. And he had a great season, but there yeah, was a couple yeah. of really big errors. So namely Silverstone yeah. in the wet, where <laughs> he was just... Seven, seven spins, wasn't it, or something? Yeah, I mean, for, for those of a certain age who might remember Beyblades, he was basically a red one of those. There were these, <laughs> they were like fidget spinners, but not as cool. Um, <laughs> and then there was obviously the very famous Singapore incident where he drove off down the pit lane with the fuel hose still attached which arguably cost him at least a podium and potentially a victory and that came back to bite him when Lewis Hamilton took that position at the final corner of the final race on the final lap to win the 2008 World Championship Felipe was incredibly fast and I think that's underlined by the fact that he has 16 pole positions in a time where Formula 1 was really competitive and he was racing against Raikkonen and Alonso and Hamilton and Vettel was coming into it as well so he had some stiff competition what, what did you make of uh, Felipe Tom? Yeah, I mean, you've done a lot more research than I have for this. I'm basing a lot of my opinions on my personal memories of, of what I saw. And, and for me, Massa, his time in, in 2007, yeah, he had a fantastic, fantastic season. 2008, obviously, another another great season. Raikkonen, just for me, really, I think him just going off the boil with Formula One and Ferrari in, in general, falling out of love with it like he did in, in the in the mid-noughties, that definitely affected his speed in that 2008 season. And then once it, it was clear that, that Massa had the had the edge for that season, he just kind of he, he just kind of disappeared and, and wasn't really interested. So I, th I think his time against Raikkonen was potentially a little bit marred by that. And uh, but his general speed can't be uh, debated. But yeah, his time with Bottas, as you say, he he was a match for Bottas at times but Bottas definitely had the the underlying speed at a time when when Bottas wasn't really setting the world alight as well I like I thought I thought he was going to be a future world champion and like you say he probably will end up on this list again at some point and for me like uh, we, we may as well get get to our ratings here I think um, I've put him as that that I think he's fairly viewed in that you know he was always this this driver that was quick but was never really amongst that upper echelons of, of drivers and, and was never really going to be a world champion unless he had by far the best car and a teammate that wasn't going to gonna beat him. But uh, I'll say by far the best car, that's probably giving him a slight disservice. He would need to be in, in the best car. And it was really, you know, it, it was 2007 missing out by the McLarens just, you know, were were just by far and away the best the best car that year but we all know what happened in 2007 and why they didn't win the constructors championship that year but yeah it's an album with you i think he's he's fairly viewed in that he was he was a good driver he was never going to win a world champion but he came damn close and that for me kind of it doesn't flatter him but i think that's kind of like that 
that just basically covers him off in a nutshell. What he achieved in Formula One that season in 2008, he was always just about there. But what, what have, how have you, have you put him? So I've rated Felipe as undervalued because I think, like with recency bias, it's difficult to look past just how much Alonso, for want of a better word, destroyed him. Mm. And you know, Fernando has done that to lots of drivers. But then you look at how well Jensen Button fared up against Fernando over three seasons. Obviously, there is the caveat that Felipe was returning from that horrendous accident where the, the spring from the Braun car hit his helmet. And, you know, he was very lucky to survive that. So I think Alonso coming in, galvanising the team in the way that Fernando does and almost taking advantage of a Felipe who was probably still finding his feet again behind a, a racing car, it just set him up, almost set him up to fail. And if, he, if he'd never returned, I think we'd have looked at a driver who didn't become world champion but came as close as you can possibly come to becoming world champion but didn't. And he'd have been probably rightly remembered as a very, very capable driver who missed out by the barest of margins to the world championship. Ultimately, he had a very long career and a well-respected career, but he never came as close as he did in 2008. He never won a race again. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, his last last race win was that Brazilian Grand Prix when it was so cruelly taken away from him. Yeah, it's, I was talking about that race earlier today, and uh, and we were talking about just how luck comes into it, and and how people win championships in certain ways when it comes down to luck. And uh, we were talking about that race, and and how oh well, Hamilton was lucky in two thousand and eight. It's like well, no, he wasn't because he was in a position to win the championship. The bad luck was the rain, which he then rectified because you know it was it was the rain that put Glock ahead of him because Glock stayed out amongst others, a couple of others stayed out as well, and then it ultimately proved to be the wrong decision and then everything fell back into the same position so he, he wasn't lucky in 2008 he was unlucky but he managed to rescue it so that I mean that that one race <laughs> we're getting completely off topic already but that one race is it just sparks so many conversations but uh, other people in, in the grid talk we asked everyone else about what they thought and a few people got back to us on, on what they thought about that Philip Matthew from the Grip Strip podcast uh, similar to me says fairly rated as did our king of grid talk Jared he, he also put him as fairly rated and Louis and Jawad uh, as well also did Louis uh, Louis Edwards and Jawad Jakubi sorry I've, I've massively pronounced your name wrong there Jawad I apologise um, other ratings there we've got uh, George Housen and Tom Downey put as overrated and I think that's it so you're the only person there that put him as underrated but uh, you've got some you've got some very good rationale behind that there anything else to say on Felipe Massa before we move on I think it's interesting that Tom and George have gone overrated I'm guessing that's you know considering that Raikkonen was falling out of love with Formula One at that point, and it arguably made Massa look better than he was, especially in 2008. And Hamilton wasn't the finished article that we see today. Mm -hmm. You know, wasn't as you know clinical with his, his racecraft and stuff in terms of delivering victories. But so you can only play the field that you've got. You know, if uh, Schumacher, when the field wasn't as strong in the early 2000s, had made a mistake and not won championships and I mean he nearly did in 2003 then we could have looked at him slightly differently but he he clinched the championships and that's all you can do so I think Felipe is you know rightly respected and you know he has a 
a good legacy within the sport. That's fair enough. We'll move on then to the the other driver that was also sparking the debate. Before we did this, we did a bit of a, a soccer school lineup of who who we're going to talk about and who who we're going to pick first. And uh, these were the first two drivers that we picked out that we wanted to talk about. And you'll see the people that miss out on this that we that we didn't talk about. We'll talk more about them probably probably at the end. But yeah, this is the first one that I wanted to talk about, and that is uh, a driver who's done 215 Grand Prix starts, nine wins, 2015 Championship runner-up. It's Mark Webber. Now, Mark Webber, I fully respect Mark Webber, and but as in a in a similar vein for me to um, to Felipe Massa, but more so, I I'm going to show my cards now. I do think he's overrated, and I, I think he did incredibly well to get to where he did. I mean, if you listen to listen to or, or read his book, Aussie Grit, common theme for us is how the F does a guy from Cambian make it to Formula One, and it's an amazing story of how he got to Formula One. And he did do fantastic. And But a lot is always made about Mark Webber. And in his debut race, he, he came fifth place in the Minardi. But what is less remembered in that race was only eight cars finished that race. So it's kind of, uh, it's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a, a bit of a false, uh, false stat that in, in that race. I know for a fact, I'm going to be quoting someone I know from my other podcast, The Monkey Seat, that, that I know that when he was at Jaguar, his teammates at Jaguar were not getting the same bits as him because they only had one good car and the other driver was a pay driver and he was the uh, he was the one that basically was supposed to be getting the results and uh, Justin Wilson one of those drivers was getting literally he could he could the bits going in the car he could see that they were like shot before they even went in the car and sometimes he'd be pulling out of the pits and he'd be like what's that rattle oh don't worry about that Justin just just go and do your best <laughs> so it's uh, it's <laughs> so you, you can't really his time at Jaguar you can't really base against his teammates and I know that he had this great start of always being his teammates up until you know he was paired with this German that you might have heard about he did struggle to be an aging David Coulthard in the early days at, at Red Bull and um, when Coulthard was clearly past his best and and Coulthard though a great racer spoiler alert we will be talking about David Coulthard later on as well so there's definitely a good mark for comparison in there um, but for me as well going through his entire career at every single level despite having various opportunities and you know what you could say that handed to him or, or not he did not ever win a world championship at any level he was only ever second which for me that does speak volumes what i know this is about formula 1 but what they do outside of formula 1 does does also bear you know i think that comes into this conversation as well as to whether they were fairly viewed you got Someone who's not on this list, someone like Stoffel van Dorn, who absolutely tore apart the junior series, came to Formula One, didn't work. Then he's gone somewhere else and he's still shown what a classy driver he is. So for me, Mark Webber is one of those people that did amazing to get into Formula One, you know, was worked so hard, hence Aussie Grit. You know, he worked so hard. He was unlucky at times. He could have won a world championship. He could have won in, uh, he could have won in 2010. Um, but if it weren't for his his issue in, was it career? I think, when he spun and went out. Was it 2010, that one? I think it was, yeah. yeah 2010. Yeah, and yeah, 2015 runner-up as well. So, but again, that that's not 2015. That's 2013, I think it is. That's my typing wrong. I would say he's... He's on the edge of being fairly viewed, but I would say that he's just falls into that overrated category for me, uh, for mostly the reason the reasons that I said. I think he's fairly rated, and I think it like you like you say it is a it's a fine line between overrated and fairly rated for Mark Webber because on his day he was fantastic. He was near enough unbeatable in certain places. Take his first win where he put it on pole at the Nurburgring. And then he bashed into the side of Barrichello's brawn 
and picked up a ten, uh, picked up a drive-through penalty, and still went went on to win. Mm. I mean, to show you how rare it is for someone to collect a penalty like that and still go on to win, it don't, I don't think it happened again until Lewis Hamilton last year at the, the British Grand Prix. So that that's quite an effort. But then there were days where he was nowhere and Vettel was romping away in the distance with the Red Bull that was all conquering. And, okay, and I think it is a case of, you know, your environment and the, the solidity you have within the team. And we'll probably touch on this when we talk about DC, but Weber at Red Bull was at the time of Vettel in his pomp and the Red Bull team was geared completely around Sebastian Vettel. And you've, you've read Mark's uh, autobiography. I've read it. And the post multi-21 situation spells the whole situation out because for anyone who hasn't read it, obviously, first of all, go and buy it. You can probably find it on Amazon fairly uh, cheaply. Um, but just to give you an insight, the team were not able to sort of discipline Vettel for breaking team orders because there was a clause in his contract that he wasn't allowed to receive an unreasonable team order, which his lawyers would have claimed staying behind Mark Webber when he had a chance to win would have been. But then there are all those other occasions where Vettel was clearly the faster driver. So you can't just take one example mm. where Webber was quicker and didn't win. But on his day, he was very, very good. He was feisty. He was aggressive. There was that overtake on Alonso into yeah. Eau Rouge, which yeah, was yeah. just stunning. So he had the cojones and he had the respect of the other drivers and, you know, if Fernando Alonso rates you as one of the most respectable drivers to go up against in a grid of 20 of the best drivers in the world, then clearly you're doing something very, very right. Yeah, I can't get over the fact that he just really likes Flavio Briatore, though. That, that is just a massive question in your character if you, if you really rate Flavio Briatore as a human being. But <laughs> To be fair, if Flavio had helped me as much as he helped some drivers i think i think quite highly of him well yeah yeah there, there is that there is that so you've obviously put him there as as mark downs fairly rated i've put him down as slightly overrated more people are on your side this time with philip matthews saying saying fair george uh fair tom fair and louis also fair it's only jared and jared that uh that agree with me that he was uh that he was somewhat overrated but uh still a, a phenomenal talent nonetheless as i said every single driver we're mentioning here if before we get people trying to cancel us for being negative every single driver here is a world-class driver and uh, all race winners yeah and they're all race winners they all deserve to win races as well and and they will be far better than we will ever be uh out ever have been and most of the people listening to this as well likely uh, will never reach the highs that these drivers do so this is just this again it's what we said nearly men it's people that were nearly the best but not quite um, so the next one on our list then is, uh, I've lost my place. Yes, it is uh, 145 Grand Prix starts, four wins, 1999 championship runner-up, and the only driver on our list not to win in the 2000s, it's Eddie Irvine. So tell us some stuff about Eddie Irvine. Well, he was an interesting character, to say the least, <laughs> but he he was like the god of number two drivers before like Bottas arrived. So <laughs> he was... Schumacher's lackey for three seasons. So they joined together in 1996. And basically, Irvine would do certain things that Schumacher needed him to do. So 
whether that was make a stunning triple double overtake through the S's at, at Suzuka and then pass Jacques Villeneuve and back him up in 1997 or you know just make sure he was there and being a nuisance to the McLarens in the late 90s but his time came in 1999 after Michael Schumacher uh, broke his leg at Silverstone by this time Irvine had already won a race but he went on to win two more races that season back to back in uh, Germany and in Austria but he also picked up 26 podiums for Ferrari and for uh, Jaguar as well. I think he might have picked up one for Jordan as well. So he had a decent career. So obviously he was partnered with Michael Schumacher, but early in his career, he was partnered with Rubens Barrichello. And Eddie Jordan essentially sold Eddie Irvine to Ferrari based on the things that he could do, basically saying, this is the guy you want to back up Schumacher. Ferrari fell for it. And Eddie Jordan's team was three or four million pounds better off. Well, I mean, Eddie Jordan could sell ice to Eskimos, though, couldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he could. He could. And I've got, I've got a very interesting story about Eddie Jordan, which I'll tell you later on off, off camera. But it was a decent career for Eddie Irvine. And no matter what you think of him and his personality and some of his off-track activities and some of the things he's come out and said in retirement, he did a great job for Ferrari. And he helped build the winning machine that they became in the early 2000s. and. You know, he, we look back on him now and, you know, it's not the most successful career, but he's made a lot of money. He's driven a Ferrari for a long time. He's had a very nice lifestyle. So he probably doesn't look back on it too badly. He was very, very unfortunate to miss out on that 99 championship. But it did show clearly that given the opportunity, he wasn't able to take it, even though he was the number one driver. And when Schumacher came back, Schumacher moved out of the way in Malaysia to hand Irvine a victory. So maybe that even makes him four victories. I think my stats are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thank well, you, Wikipedia. Um, yeah, fantastic. Uh, well, um, I think with, um, with, with Eddie, he's, um, do you think, uh, this, this is a bit of conspiracy theory here, that 1999 championship, Schumacher comes back and then is just all-conquering Eddie Irvine. I remember that first race back, and that was that was just I, that was for me was the moment where I realised just how good Michael Schumacher was because the guy comes back after a massive layoff, his first race back, and he spends the entire race going as slow as possible to slow up the McLarens, and then ends up leading the race and having to give the victory to Eddie Irvine. It's just it's just phenomenal just how good that guy was, and uh, yes, Eddie Irvine was was paired with him, and yeah, he, obviously yeah, Schumacher was. You know, was the uh, was the golden child of that, and uh, I think with, with Eddie, his um, it was said that Schumacher, a lot like was it Lauda and Reutemann, that Irvine could set a car up much better than Schumacher, and often yeah. Schumacher would nick Irvine's setups because he couldn't get the car working well enough. And I don't know how true those are. These were, you know, this is coming out of Eddie Irvine's mouth, so this is uh, never, a pinch of salt. Exactly, you, ne <laughs> you never heard true those. But the guy was a phenomenal businessman, very similar in, in vein to, to Mark Webber, in that you know he he did great to get there. He was very lucky to be with Eddie Jordan who saw that he had talent but needed to offload him for money purposes and uh, and it really worked and him going to Ferrari potentially saved the Jordan team so uh, yeah he's definitely ironically got... may have cost him the 99 championship with friends involved <laughs> <laughs> yes yes this is true which another person who I'm sure will come to later on but uh, yeah so there's there's generally there's Again, very similar thing for him. I've I've got him down there as as, as fairly as fairly rated. Are you you've gone for what have you gone for for him? Uh, finding Eddie Irvine. I've gone for underrated mm -hmm. because 
I just, I just think if you're paired with Schumacher and you're asked to do all of that that work and there is the, the comment about he was good at setting up the car whereas Schumacher wasn't at that point in his career. You know, if, if you're basically enabling Michael Schumacher to do well through your own hard work in terms of setting up the car, then you're doing something right. You must be very good at what you're doing. And I think he, I think he got, he was probably at the wrong time of his career and he ended up moving to Jaguar and it, it, it didn't work. I mean, he probably wasn't getting the same bits as Mark Webber either. So, you know, make of that what you will. So the Jaguar setup was terrible and his career sort of nosedived from there. But otherwise he was, he was a good driver. He, he was fast and he could hang with the, the top guys on his day. And I think that's going to be a recurring theme amongst these guys. It was, on their day, they could do this. On their day, they could win. But Eddie really could. He could do the job that Ferrari asked him to do. And he did it. No questions asked. There was none of this, no, please don't ask me to do that. It was, okay, I'll do that. I'll try that. And yeah, as I was getting to with the conspiracy theory earlier, the whole thing with, with Ferrari, that the, the question was when Schumacher came back and was so good that Eddie Irvine, potentially they realised that Eddie wasn't up to all that and that you know perhaps maybe he shouldn't be the driver that's going to win the world championship. And the conspiracy theory is that that Ferrari tanked that last race so that um, so that Irvine wouldn't win the championship, but they would get the constructors. That gets that one ticked off the list and come back the next year with Schumacher you know, all, all dominating, which... Uh, which basically is is what happened but take from that what you will this Eddie Irvine loving is going to have to end now by me talking about what everyone else thinks about Eddie Irvine and I'll have to say every other panellist that responded to this put him as overrated so uh, <laughs> definitely uh, there's definitely a bit of a been a bit of a, a bit of a bias against Eddie Irvine from the from the rest of the grid talkers, but don't worry, Eddie, we've got your back. Certainly, Aaron slightly more than me, but uh, I I think I think you're all right, and Aaron thinks that you're potentially a lost world champion. So, uh, so we'll, go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, he couldn't he couldn't have got much closer. To be fair, he is very close in '99. But yeah, so next driver then on our on our list with 322 Grand Prix starts, 11 wins, the 2002 and 2004 Championship runner-up, perennial bridesmaid. Rubens Barrichello scored points in pretty much every year he was in Formula 1 except for 2007 but that car was an absolute dog of a car uh, he also got quite a few 10th places in that season but of course we only awarded points down to 6th place then so that makes his performances even more extraordinary in the early part of his career that he was scoring points in in that Jordan and and um and just generally Again, similar to Bottas in that he's he's got he had a lot of pace. He's so mentally strong. Like that time when he was with Schumacher, five years or four years with Michael Schumacher, where it was just an all conquering team, an all conquering car. He must it must have taken him so much to come back every year. Very similar to Bottas in that you know you're up against the the greatest of all time. You've got to mentally reset every year and then and then try and come back stronger. And uh, and he really took the fight to button in 2009 after so many years of of being again the bridesmaid and getting the odd win and being told to move aside on the at the last moment in Austria in 2002 and and just a lot of respect for him as well and given that we almost lost him in uh, in that fateful race in 1994 as well you know he would have been he would have been three drivers potentially if uh, uh, if things had gone slightly differently in Imola in 94 so just so glad that we got to keep him and he got such a great long career as well um but that that championship year in in 2009 as well with with Jensen Button 
on another day the way I understand it he thought his career was over he went off and was was indulging in in the finer finer things in life and not expecting to be racing again Uh, yes exactly (laughs) and then uh, and then all of a sudden he's back in the car he's not fit he's not expecting the car to be competitive and then Button starts the season off really really well and then he's always again the bridesmaid at that point and it's 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 hard to fight back second half of the season he was the better driver the only driver to win a race in the brawn in um after after race six or after race seven so it's um yes after race six sorry it was uh five races button one that year wasn't it and uh yeah so it was it was a strong season for him that year and just a, a, a strong championship and just just universally loved throughout the field if you could award championships based on how much you like someone then Rubens Barrichello would be a multi-time world champion all over but uh, what's, what's your thoughts on Rubinho? I think he summed him up very well there and he's very very similar to Bottas because what you can do with Rubens and with Valtteri's careers because they were for so long in such dominant machinery whether it be the Ferrari or the Mercedes, and they were up against the greatest driver of that time, you get a really good read on exactly where they are. So for Rubens, he was very close to to Michael, but not always good enough to beat him. On his day, he could. And even on his day, Ferrari would move him out of the way even though Schumacher had a ridiculous lead in the World Championship in 2002. For anyone who, is, who wasn't able to live through that, just go back and watch it. You get like the ITV commentary on YouTube for the, like, the last two, three laps. And the whole time they're like, no, 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 well, they won't do it. Because they'd done it the year before in 2001 in Austria. Mm. Even though uh, with all that, on that day, Coulthard was winning the race. And they're like, no, 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 they won't do it again. They won't do it again. And then Ferrari pulled it. And it was absolutely as bad as you can imagine mm. so he when, dominated the race as well didn't he absolutely yeah. dominated. it wasn't like he it was a it was a, like a safety car or or like a you know a bad pit stop or something he dominated that race yeah he'd been the better driver the whole weekend and if you thought fernando is faster than you was bad this was another level so rubens had his fair share of mistreatment so to say so to say but then there were days where he just wasn't able to cut it. And I think we found out exactly how good he was up against Jensen Button in the fact that they were very, very evenly matched. And what it came down to was preparation. And if if your story is correct, Tom, I've not heard that story myself, but if Jensen was preparing himself for a drive and the event and the possibility that the team would be uh, resuscitated and the car would be good, and Rubens was uh, living the Brazilian lifestyle, <laughs> then you you only have to question his his himself. So it was his own choice to go and enjoy himself and believe that his career was over, which at that point in his career, probably fairly acceptable. But there was always that opportunity. And everyone had said through 2008, the Honda is going to be really good. Honda had been working on this for a while. Honda have been doing really well. The, the numbers look great. So surely you'd have made sure you were in tip-top shape, ready for Melbourne, just in case, or even in Malaysia, if the team were a late late start, just in case that car was competitive. So he probably threw away the 2009 championship if, if that story you've, you've told is, is correct. So I think based on that, he's fairly rated because... He, he let 
opportunities go and then he wasn't able to be in the right place at the right time. Jensen Button was, and then he wasn't quick enough to beat Marcus Schumacher, which, you know, can happen to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like pretty much every driver in Formula One history. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I, I and it's, it's a unanimous decision. The only driver that's unanimous in the whole of the Grid Talk crew that we've all put them as fairly rated. Uh, I completely agree with with everything you, you've said there. And and as you say, Rubens, like he was very good in the wet. He was, uh, you know, he's mentored by Senna, and and you know, Senna said he was going to be a world champion, and and he could well have been on on another day. But like we say, he's he's remembered for this, you know, this this great number two driver. He's remembered for the the guy that was never really in with a chance of winning a world championship and that's kind of kind of where he lands and and that's i think that that's he's one of the people that after such a long career as well you know, he, he made his debut in 1993 and he finished in 2011 it's uh it's a long long championship a long long uh career he's got there and uh and he certainly he got a, a fair share of wins he had some good machinery he had some bad machinery he made good performances in bad machinery he had bad performance in good machinery so i think never winning a championship is probably just about right for rubens but yeah so moving on to to the next person on our list when we when we picked this, there was one person that I particularly wanted to pick, and unfortunately, you got there first. <laughs> it was uh, 246 Grand Prix starts, 13 wins, 2001 Championship runner-up, David Coulthard. Yeah, I, I had to get in there with DC. He was my favourite driver as a, as a young boy growing up. Yeah, me too. Um, Thanks for that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people, especially British people, wanted DC to do well despite the fact that he's Scottish and then, you know, they seemingly didn't want Andy Murray to do well at tennis. So, you know, go figure. But yeah, DC had a good career, didn't he? 13 wins, 62 podiums, pole position on 12 occasions. And if you look at the the teammates that he had, you know, some of these he, you could argue, was probably quicker than. So Damon Hill, maybe in the 96 Williams, DC would have been world champion because he had the upper hand in 95 towards the end. Mika Hakkinen was just something else. Kimi Räikkönen again, something else. And we've already touched on Mark Webber, and DC had a bit of an edge over, over Webber on occasion. But it was just a... It was an interesting dynamic, because you could always see that DC was very fast, but he bore the brunt of the McLaren unreliability in the late 90s and early 2000s. I think it was 99... Um, he retired from both of the first two races with unreliability. So in, in that time, it wasn't so uncommon for cars to break down and, and not make the finish. But there was also, if you read, I believe it's his first, it is what it is. Which, which is, is the best, things. the best name for an autobiography for an Illy driver. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah. the, like that whole title just sums up his entire career. Yeah, it does. And there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's some interesting uh, snippets from that book, not all of which are probably... Um, <laughs> suitable for a podcast that may be listened to by young children. So he, he had a very interesting career, but the thing that really held him back, I think, was his relationship with Ron Dennis and maybe not even his relationship with Ron Dennis, Mika Hakkinen's relationship with Ron Dennis. And obviously there was the, paren- the, the, the um, what's the phrase for it? The When someone's a father figure, uh, well, yeah, p- parental thing. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not sorry. There, there sorry, sorry yeah. Yes, yeah. I know. I know what you mean. Like almost like a mentor or or that, yeah. that kind of that kind of relationship with, with Ron and, and Mika, definitely. 
yeah, there was a paternal, that's it. There was almost a yes. paternal yes. relationship between uh, Ron Dennis and Mika Hakkinen after Hakkinen was almost killed in 1995 in Adelaide. He was very, very lucky. Again, go and find uh, the clip on YouTube that the impact is absolutely enormous. And we're speaking on a day where we've seen uh, Zhou Guan Yu somersault into catch fencing, which is something we don't see very often. And that was quite shocking. So for DC, that was tough to take. And it, he, he found like a release when Ron Dennis admitted to it. That he treated Mika slightly differently because of what had happened. And DC said, you know, that, that put me at ease. And he was still able to deliver some fantastic drives. One of my favourite races of DC was one of his victories uh, in 2001 at the Brazilian Grand Prix where he had decent pace but it started to rain and Schumacher was leading Schumacher the rainmeister looked untouchable but Schumacher made a mistake and DC was on hand to scoop up and he made a brilliant overtake on Schumacher so into turn one at Interlagos on the brakes it's where it goes downhill you know, you're trying to pass Michael Schumacher and then, you know, throw in a, throw in between them a Minardi driven by the pretty hapless Alex Jung, who's in like his second race. And you've got to try and pass him as well. So it was a phenomenal overtake and he won comfortably in the end. It was just one of his best victories. And that I always remember that one. It was just DC at his best. Yeah, yeah. David was—he was one of those one of those people that you just always willed to win races, but you knew deep down he probably there was going to be something. There was unreliability. There'd be something that would get in the way. But the thing that stands out for me for Coulthard in in that why I I wouldn't put him as as underrated. I put him as fairly viewed. It, it, he was still you know capable of those. Was it first time he was on pole and he uh, and he dropped it in the gravel? I think was it Monza? Maybe he was he dropped it in yeah. the gravel and then there was a restart. So he so he got the pole position back again. He dropped it on a formation lap. I mean, we saw Max Verstappen do that a couple of years ago anyway, so that's or even last year, so that's not you know completely unforgivable. But I just remember his um, going into the pit wall in Adelaide and when he from the lead and uh, and taking Barry out Walker's commentary, yeah, <laughs> yes, and then oh, uh, David yeah. Coulthard, <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> but yeah, and then just a, a couple of times he he just let the the emotion get the better of him, and and I, I remember he he made a very uh, very ambitious move up the inside of Mika Hakkinen in Austria, spinning him round. And then I remember Martin Brundle saying, well, if you're going to do that to your teammate, you better make damn sure you win the race. Uh, he came second in that race. Uh, <laughs> and probably... Steady Irvine. <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just remember the couple of times when he's he just lets, let emotions and, and things get the better of him. But you know, absolute great value, uh, brilliant, you know, great gentleman, great ambassador for the sport knows how to party if you just need to listen to some of the stories from like the, the, the from the clubs in monaco and uh, another one i recommend is is mark Priestley's book to see like some of the stuff that dc got up to and <laughs> but yeah I, I, mark Priestley's book one thing that jumped out for me because I've, I've read that too yeah was dc's sort of human side mm. he was the first person to go and sit with mark who was fairly new to the mclaren team at that time he'd have been maybe in his early 20s, but DC, a seasoned professional, a Grand Prix winner, a racing driver, one of Mark's heroes, came and took the time to sit next to him while they were having lunch mm. and just chat to him. So there was there was a lot more to DC than you know the parties and the racing driver and the unreliability <laughs> and the silly mistakes. He was 
he is genuinely a really, really nice person, even though he comes out with some strange comments now about Lewis Hamilton, but he's still, you know, really highly respected. Mm, yeah, definitely. And uh, and as well, another another one, not to go, but keep going back to the same source, but again, in Mark Priestley's book, there was a story about when they when they wrecked one of the higher vans that they had and that they just, the, the party on the van got a little bit too crazy. The minivan, they were ripping seats out and throwing them out the window. And, and then the bill came back for the car from the hire company and it was like 20 grand or something. And he, he ended up going to DC, just be like, we're going to lose our jobs here. Is, is, is there any, is there any way you could, you can help? And uh, he basically said, oh, how much is the damage? And then he said 20 grand or whatever it was. And then he goes, oh, good effort. Because <laughs> 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 that's the kind of stuff that they would get up to all the time anyway. And I, and, uh, I was very, I'd never actually met David, but I was at the uh, British Grand Prix one year and, uh, and it was just before my mother's 50th birthday, DC being her favourite uh, her favorite driver of all time. And I, I, um, I really wanted to get a picture of him and, or sign something from him. And I was in this queue to see him and uh, I had my programme there ready to go. Back in the days when you, no one had digital cameras, I had a you know, standard normal camera. I was like, well, if I, I wasn't sure if I was going to get to see him or not. And uh, I was like, well, I can at least get a picture of him. And I got this really nice close-up picture of him. And I was like, perfect, great, fantastic. Unfortunately, I wasn't far enough ahead. I wasn't able to get him to sign it. He had to go. So I, I missed out. I was next. To, I was about 10 people behind. And I was like, okay, well, at least I've got a good picture of him. Went to develop the film. And, uh, and yeah, there was a lovely shot of his torso. And then my finger coming out of his neck where I've let it go over the camera lens. Oh no! So I didn't even get the picture of him, but uh, but yeah, that's 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 my the closest I've come to meeting David Coulthard. But uh, yeah, so we've we've got David Coulthard down there as, as as fairly. I've got him as fairly viewed. This is very split. This one you've got him as underrated. So other underrated, you got George Halson, obviously fellow Brit there, also got him as underrated. Uh, and ha- as has Louis. So we've then got uh, Jawad has got him as fairly viewed, as well as Jared and Tom. And then it's just, uh, say, Philip has got him as overrated. Uh, so that's that's DC, uh, one of the uh, one of the sport's biggest gentlemen as well. And I just remember when he when he had his last race, there was like a collective groan from the entire country when uh, when he got taken out on that first. Was it Kazuki Nakajima took him out on the first corner of his last race? <laughs> Both the Williams, I think Rosberg hit him, and then as he was spinning, Nakajima was taking avoiding action and just ploughed into him. That's right, yeah. But I think Nakajima had collided with him twice that year anyway, and so he was just yeah. like, well, it's kind of right that it's Nakajima that ends my career. Yep. <laughs> so next up, then, we got 94 starts, seven wins, third place in 2002 and 2003, a very divisive figure Juan Pablo Montoya, a very, um, as I said, a very divisive figure. Only five full seasons in uh, in Formula One, um, with terrible unreliability in his first couple of years. Um, I think the Schumacher years very much ruined his legacy, and uh, and a bad career move to McLaren kind of just saw out a uh, a five years that just offered so much more. The guy purely, you know, clearly had loads of speed, but I think it was in 2001, it was race five before he actually finished a race, and then he came second in his first finish, and then he had another three retirements to follow that, so just one one finish in the first in the first eight races still managed sixth place in the drivers championship and getting his first win that season as well in a car that wasn't the best in the grid but it was certainly competitive uh, his certainly his team at time at bmw williams was um was much more fruitful than his time at mclaren just didn't gel with ron dennis just those two just not really the right people to be partnered at all but he's i think the thing with juan pablo is that well, like I said before, he's the stuff he does outside of Formula One, as well as before and after his career, that does shape him as a, as a driver as well. 
And you look at what he did outside of Formula One. His versatility was phenomenal. He's the closest, still the closest driver to completing the Triple Crown, uh, despite Fernando Alonso fans telling me otherwise, because he's won the Indianapolis 500. He's won it twice. And that's the hardest race to win. Uh, he was in a competitive enough car to win at Monaco. He's won Monaco. And he's he just shows no interest in doing Le Mans. If he decided he wanted to do Le Mans and Toyota wanted to get the Triple Crown on their, uh, on, on their books, you know, then... He could easily go there and win, despite being still racing at 46. He raced in the Indianapolis 500 this year at age 46. He showed good pace. He didn't have an amazing finish in the end, but he showed good pace. He still got it. And and yeah, although I disagreed, I didn't like him as a as a person in Formula One. I found him very... And also, that's because he replaced David Coulthard. So that always... I was always uh, <laughs> going to be uh, negative against him there. But uh, and then, yeah, his, his time when he injured himself quad biking, when allegedly he was playing tennis and had to miss a couple of races. And so it, it just never really... Just never really worked out in Formula One. And I think he knows that. And I think he knows he wasted his opportunity in Formula One. So for me, I've got him as underrated because I just feel that that with so much speed and such a short time in formula 1 he he just he just never fulfilled his fulfilled his potential and so for me he had to go down as underrated based on that but i know you've got a differing opinion on that so i'm going to hand the mic to you now it's it's based on a similar premise that he didn't fulfill his potential so therefore i think he's actually overrated and if you think of what he could have achieved in formula 1 in the right machinery, he could have taken the fight straight to Michael Schumacher. And we saw that in Brazil in 2001, rolling restart. He puts the move on Schumacher and forces him like onto the grass. It was like a, a, uh, the predecessor to sort of the Verstappen moves that we see now, forcing him right to the edge. And, you know, he went on and he led that race brilliantly until, you know, Jos Verstappen drove into him. So, the, the, the scene was set there for a driver who could take the Formula One world by the scruff of the neck and do something with it. And we'd already had Jacques Villeneuve come over from the Americas and win the World Championship and look amazing. And then it had sort of fallen apart for him at, at BAR. And here was Montoya, who was every bit as fast, every bit as flamboyant, had this crazy character, the flair and, you know, just everything. And yet it, it never worked out. And I was, as you were speaking, I was thinking he never really got on at, at Williams. It was probably too regimented. And, you know, Sir Frank and Patrick Head probably running too tight a ship and had a BMW taken over fully, it may have been a different story. And then the, the combination of Montoya and Ron Dennis at McLaren was probably never going to work. And it got me thinking, well, where else would Montoya have had success, you know, in terms of a team situation, would he have functioned well at Ferrari? Definitely not alongside Schumacher, but would the Ferrari culture have, you know, been a little bit too much for him? Probably. You know, we see how it gets in its own way still, even to this day. And you got me thinking he'd need not a manufacturer, he'd need an independent. And I'm thinking, you know, a Jordan with Eddie Jordan at the helm, who's very happy to have a free spirit in the car. But obviously Jordan by that point, weren't race winners and he probably wouldn't have got on very well with Flavio Briatore at Renault. So he was probably a great driver, but just completely unsuited to the dynamics of Formula One teams at that time because of his personality, not to say that he was a bad apple or anything, but just the way that Formula One was structured at the time, it was so sort of clinical and I don't think he fit that mold, but he, 
he was still a fantastic driver. I was watching Montoya race, and I always thought, you know, if anyone could challenge Schumacher, he would be one of them. And he came very close in 2003, but, you know, through various reasons, um, his uh, disqualification in Indianapolis and the changing of the tyre rules, and maybe just the sheer competitiveness of the field that year, it never quite worked out for him. But he, he was a fantastic driver, and he still is. You know, he's shown that. He won the Indy 500 twice, and that's not an easy thing to win. Yes, yeah, so I think we've kind of we've got similar similar opinions, but come to a different conclusion from the same opinions, which is uh, which is what a lot of people do on the, on social media, and that's how arguments happen. I had a I did a, a massive debate with with my wife last night about um, about something that's happened in Formula One recently, uh, which I'm not going to talk about on, on here because that's a completely separate issue. But uh, it was about people saying the wrong things, and uh, we basically we had this massive heated debate about who, who who was worse and who was wrong, and we both had exactly the same opinion, but we somehow managed to make a 20 minute argument about this this thing when we both had the exact same opinion and it, I was just like we're doing it again we're arguing about something that we both agree on how does this happen and that's that's I think that's that's Juan Pablo Montoya <laughs> basically and um, Phil Matthew has also got him as underrated with, with George Halson Jared and Louis have also got him as underrated and then it's just Jared has got him as overrated with you Aaron I'm afraid and Tom Downey the forever fence sitter uh, has got him as fairly viewed so uh that's Juan Pablo Montoya. So next up then, we have uh, 180 Grand Prix starts, six wins, best finish of fourth in uh, in the 2001 and 2002 championships, which is Ralph Schumacher. The microphone is yours, sir. Well, Ralph Schumacher, where, have, where is he? I've got him as overrated. And this is pretty much based off the successes that his brother had and everyone expecting him to be as good as Michael but what we didn't realize at the time was Michael was a freak um and Ralph was probably just very good but then you can also look at it and say he was probably slightly outperformed by Montoya when they were paired together at Williams and I think that gives you a good read on the situation and of course Ralph had his his days, as all of these drivers have, and probably none more so than his first win at Imola, which, you know, he started third on the grid in that in that race, but he made a lightning start and never looked back. So it is almost a career of what if for Ralph, but then he's constantly in the shadow of his big brother and everyone expecting him to, to be this great driver and then his move to Toyota never really panned out and that's probably more Toyota's end than anything because they had uh, Ralph Schumacher and Jano Trulli behind the wheel who were both race winners at that that point and well-respected drivers so you know I think he was overrated because he was just too closely compared to Michael and people didn't let him be his, his own driver. And I think if we'd done that, he would have been viewed fairly as a good racing driver, but not a great one. Yeah, I always try and uh, I try and avoid comparisons in this. And uh, when a lot of people criticise, say, for example, the the Star Wars films, uh, I, I have a point. Trust me, I'm getting to it. Uh, and 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 they say about how bad the prequels are. And then I just say, well, just look at look at them as individual sci-fi films. Forget about the fact they're Star Wars films. They're okay. 
you know, they're all right films. They're not brilliant, but they're not terrible. There's some bad script writing in there, but uh, but they're not they're not horrendous films. And the same with the new films as well. You know, take take Star Wars off this pedestal. They're they're still they're still good films in their own right, but they're just not what you're putting them on this pedestal. And people put Michael on this this huge pedestal with good reason because he was, like you say, put it so aptly, a freak and uh, a freak of nature and just a phenomenal performer. So Ralph, in his in his own right, was was a fast racer and and what. Got some good races, showed some consistency, showed some pace, being very close to Juan Pablo Montoya, who I rate very highly as a racer. And to look at it in isolation, you look at Ralph Schumacher, I see him as a driver who won a couple of races, never won a championship, and was not as good as Michael Schumacher. And that's exactly what he was. So for me, that makes him fairly viewed. But uh, I am in somewhat of a minority there. And with with George Housen being the only person who agrees with me, everyone else agrees with you. So... uh, it's definitely I'm in the minority there for Grid Talk, and most people are with you on the fact that he is uh, he is in fact overrated. But uh, I feel a little bit feel a little bit bad for him. But um, especially when we when we go to the junior career, and then you've got son of Michael Mick Schumacher in Formula One, son of Ralph David doing absolutely nothing. So it's <laughs> it follows through in uh, it's through the genes as well. So. Uh, Next up then is uh, the driver I'm going to be talking about is 156 Grand Prix starts. Just the three wins, often forgotten that he was the runner-up in the 1997 championship. Uh, It's it's Heinz-Harald Frentzen. Now, he's only just slipped onto this list because he's, uh, again, he's, um, when I said earlier about Irvine being the only one who didn't win a race in the 2000s, I I think that's wrong. I believe Frentzen didn't win a race in the 2000s either, so I I was probably slightly incorrect with that statement. But uh, Frentzen... Again, yeah, runner-up in 1997. Everyone always talks about his his year at Jordan when he when he was uh, he was he was going for the championship and ended up finishing third. But his junior career to Schumacher, uh, he were, he was he was with Ju- Schumacher all through the junior junior ranks, and he often beat him. Was often better than him. Um, strong but inconsistent, and I I just remember like throwing throwing a few races away here and there, uh, and unlucky at times as well. But runner-up to Jacques in um, in 1997. And um, only four points off him in 1998 in his second season, which um, was often forgot about as well. Two podiums uh, and a bucket of retirements in 2000s, just just uh, in, in year 2000, sorry, and just really a, a, a bad career move to Prost. And then no competitive cars after that. He was never going to win a championship after he left Williams. Um, I mean, he had an outside chance at Jordan, but that would have been a hell of a story. That would have been like Braun or or uh, or Leicester winning the Premier League, that kind of story. So it was very unlikely to happen. But it, it just kind of it just kind of petered out for Heinz Harrell, which is a bit of a shame. Um, I remember when he was when he was at Jordan, they had the um, they called it like the, the friends in special setup. They basically he turned up to the first race, had a setup that worked, and then every race they just put that setup on the car because it worked. Didn't matter what the race was, Monaco, Silverstone, whatever, had the same setup on the car, and it was just quick. So they they did hardly any setup work on the car at all because they didn't want to change it because it was going so well. So yeah, Heinz Harrell is. He's a bit of an anomaly in there. I, I've put him as underrated, and I've, I've done that partially to be kind of a, a little bit of a troublemaker, but um, also just because, uh, similar to, one, to Juan Montoya, you know, there was a lot of stuff there that that looked like it could have been better than it was, and I just feel a little bit bad that things didn't quite work out for him when, when they potentially could have done. But, but yeah, just, just generally a, never going to be a world champion, but I feel he gets a lot of stick. People say that he's he, you know, he was never any good when that's clearly not the case. He clearly had pace. He was clearly good in the junior ranks, clearly good in Formula 1, but just never really 
managed to put it together. Wasn't as good as Jacques Villeneuve, but you know, not many were. Jacques was Jacques was solid, and uh, but yeah, just didn't never really had the had the uh, the machinery after those first few years. Yeah, Heinz Howard's an interesting one because, like you say about his junior career, he was constantly beating Michael Schumacher, and that's kind of why I got him as overrated because when it when he arrived, he was oh, there's this guy who he beat Schumacher. And Schumacher in the mid-90s was, you know, really starting to show how good he was up against, well, obviously up against and then after Senna had passed away. And then Frentzen arrives on the scene and everyone's like, oh, this guy means business. This guy could take it to Schumacher. But there was always the the question mark of his mentality and could he handle pressure? Um, And in the 97 Australian Grand Prix, when, well, they didn't know at the time, but the brakes had failed. Murray and Martin on the commentary believed that Frenson had thrown the race away with a mistake. Obviously, they weren't to know at the time that the brakes had, had blown up. But, you know, people almost expected him to fail in, in some ways, but they also expected him to be just as quick as Michael and be able to beat him almost every race. So there was almost a hype around him that people seemed to look past what he really truly was, which was a very good race driver, but never really world champion material because once he was alongside Frentzen, he was once he was alongside Villeneuve, you know, Villeneuve got the better of him in, in both seasons. Okay, Frentzen was close in 98, but then he moved on to Jordan and Damon Hill had, had sort of fallen out of love with Formula One by that point and was almost just doing a farewell tour. But he did drive brilliantly for Jordan. It was just, it's a classic case of the right driver in the right car in the right team at the right time. And, but for forgetting to press one or two buttons at the Nürburgring, he may have won that race and Malaysia and Suzuka could have looked completely different because I think he kind of phoned in, uh, in Singapore, in, in Sepang and then Suzuka, they probably didn't quite have the car, but he could still have gone to the Japanese Grand Prix with an outside chance of winning had things gone his way. But, you know, it was just one of those things. And I, I remember vividly, there's the, the camera zooms in on Frenson in the Jordan and he's banging the steering wheel. And he knows that was his chance of a world championship gone in, in a heartbeat. But he he was a good driver and he, he bounced around in the midfield teams for a little bit. Um, not to much great success, but they knew what they were getting. They were getting experience and they were getting someone who could drive the car very quickly. But yeah, just... Unfortunately for Heinz Harold, never quite good enough to be a world champion. No, that's 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 fair enough. And um, the next person we're going to move on to uh, is uh, is someone who is still very highly spoken about. And uh, with 99 Grand Prix starts, just the one win, fourth place in 2007 was his best result. Still on the books at Alfa Romeo, it's Bobby K, Robert Kubica. Uh, yeah, give us give us some stats on Robert Kubica. So he took that one and only victory in Canada, which has a bit of a a thing about throwing up surprise and maiden winners, a bit like Budapest, in, interestingly enough, because you've got lots of drivers, so like Lewis Hamilton, Robert Kubica, um, they took their first wins in Canada. I believe uh, Daniel Ricciardo, that was the one I was missing, and John Lacey. Um, and then you go to Budapest and Damon Hill, Jensen Button, Esteban Ocon, all take their first win there. It's, just one of those places, a couple of those places that seem to spring up strange results. And Kibitza was fantastic. 
he really, really was. I think he was a victim of BMW thinking too far in the future and getting it all wrong because they had the car to win the 08 championship in the hands of Robert Kubica. But they got so bogged down in helping Nick Heidfeld that they took their eye off the ball and thought, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll go with the 2009 car, the change of regulations. And then they banked everything on 2009 and then it fell flat on its face. It took them a while to figure that car out. When um, BMW sorted that 09 car out, it was Kubica who got it working. And, you know, he, he showcased that with a podium in Sao Paulo and Heidfeld was nowhere. So that, that tells you exactly how good Robert was. He was able to drive almost anything pretty handily. And it is such a shame that he, he loved driving so much that he wanted to go and do rallying. And that's where he had the accident. Now, I didn't realize he'd had the accident for almost two or three days because my internet at home had crashed over the weekend that, that it happened. And it wasn't until it come back on and I, I was flicking through like the BBC. And I was like, oh, what's happened here? This is strange. I'd, I'd heard nothing. It's, it's just so sad. It's, it's actually worse than looking at someone and going, yeah, they never fulfilled their potential. Mm. It's, it's, it's a, instead of a wasted career, it, it's a lost career. It's a lost driver. There was, there's talk that he was going to Ferrari for 2010, and that's probably what, uh, oh no, sorry, 2012, and that's probably what kept Massa in that seat as long as it did. Imagine Alonso and Kubica in the Ferrari had Ferrari sorted the car out. <laughs> yeah. But that would have been a really, really interesting dynamic, those two. I think they'd have got on pretty well and the racing would have been pretty fair. It would have been really interesting to see who had come out on top. But for, for Robert, the fact that he got back into Formula One as a racing driver with Williams is such a massive achievement that you know it, it just doesn't bear any comparison because... He could have been killed in that accident and he's just so fortunate to be alive. And the fact that he still gets to get behind the wheel of a Formula One car, um, only as a test driver or reserve, but he's there on hand. He knows he can still do it. Obviously, he's not as good as he used to be and that's understandable. But the fact that he's he's got back to that elite level just speaks volumes about the person he is and the character that he has and what, what could have been in the right machine he would have been a world champion. Yeah, no, I, I completely echo that. And it's it's great that he's... I'm so glad that he got back to Formula One. And, and I, I look at I look at Robert Kubica's career and, and there's nobody would have put him as overrated in in, in a month of Sundays, I don't think. And, and I'm certainly I'm not in that camp as well. But the reason I've put him down as fairly viewed is because Robert Kubica, it's not about what he achieved in his career. It's, what, it's how he was rated and everybody rated him as a future world champion. Everybody rated him as this this brilliant driver. Everyone knew it was BMW's fault for 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 tanking the end of the season in, in favour of the 2009 regulation, saying that's when we're going to be good, instead of focusing on the here and now and trying to achieve then. And uh, I, Although I don't think he would have won the championship in 2008, I think he probably would have been second in the championship, potentially. But is, you're 100% right, it's a lost career. But when I, look, when I think of Kubica, I think of the times when whenever he was on track, and he was chasing down the guy in front. You thought, oh, this is going to be it. He's, that's it. You know, he's, he's too good. And that's how everyone views him. So for me, 
he is fairly racy because that's that's right. That is how he was, and that that's not a that's not a mistake. That's not something that's lost in translation or lost lost over over time and recency bias and stuff. That is just how he was. He is a lost world champion. It is a lost career, and so that's why I've put him down as fairly viewed. And I know you um, you have put him as underrated, which is absolutely fine because you obviously rate him even higher than that. I'm assuming. Well, I think it's just it's it's a bit like like we said with Mark Webber, where it's that fine line between two selections. Obviously, you've got him as fairly rated. And he is absolutely fairly rated. He was a very very good racing driver, and I think with a little bit more time, you know, the the 2010 season with Renault, he was excellent, and that 2011 Renault was pretty funky with how it did the old exhaust blowing. So he might have been able to work some magic and and pull out some really good results. But I think, I think I've, I've just gone. I know that I've gone for him as underrated because of what we lost. Because there could have been so much more to come. So I think in a similar, it's a similar trend to Massa. He had that that traumatic injury, and you know, you never quite know how someone's going to come back. And obviously, Robert, came, his recovery took a long, lot longer than than Felipe's. But I think Robert was probably a better driver than Felipe Massa. Oh yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. But uh, with with you, you've got uh, you've got George is with you, Louis and Jared are with you as well on underrated, and with me, it, Philip, uh, Tom, and Jared have all agreed with me. So we're completely split down the middle. Everyone sees him as a lost career and a lost world champion, but uh, but yeah, like you say it just kind of sits on that line. But the final driver we're going to talk about today is uh, hundred and eleven Grand Prix starts, just the one win. 2007 and 2008 best finish of seventh. Why is he on this list again? It's uh, it's Heike Kovalainen, and uh, for me, Heike Kovalainen in a time when when McLaren needed somebody who was just going to going to be the lapdog and obey and and pick and just pick up the results when needed. Heike Kovalainen was that guy, except he didn't pick up the results when they were needed. I lost count of the amount of times in in 2008 when I remember sitting there 2008 me cheering on Lewis Hamilton to get his first world championship saying to myself I'm quoting myself come on Heike play the game that's what I used to say because he was just he was just never there it's like right okay Hamilton's had a problem right can Kovalainen do it no he he can't and his best moment in the McLaren was holding off Lewis for a couple of laps in 08 before Lewis went on to win by a couple of minutes and Heike Kovalainen was nowhere after qualifying on pole was it second place in his debut season? He got a uh, second place in Fuji. There were only 10 finishes in that race, but it was still an impressive race. And to be honest, I think that's the result that got him that drive. I think they just like, well, look, we, we, we need another Kimi Raikkonen. It clearly didn't work with Alonso, so we need another Kimi Raikkonen. Oh, Heike Kovalainen. Yeah, he'll do. <laughs> it's just... The only thing I'd say with Heike is that he did win championships elsewhere, but I just don't think Formula One suited him. It, was, uh, it suited him at times, but certainly his time at McLaren didn't. And then he never had a competitive car after that. But he didn't really, he, he never really fulfilled anything really in any car, apart from the, one good result in a Renault, a couple of results in the best car in the field. And then beyond that, just nothing. And yet he still, I mean, Hamilton rated him very highly and couldn't believe it when he was out of a drive. I remember, I remember him saying, it's just madness that Heike can't, isn't going to be on the grid next year. But for me, I've still got him as overrated because I just I just don't see what it was. He's the kind of guy that got a couple of good results, a couple of good performances, clearly quick, clearly a world-class driver, but not really as highly rated as people put him. 
yeah, he, he <laughs> almost a victim of his own mini success in Fuji. And that, that race in Fuji was, you know, atrocious conditions. You think, you know, Spa 2021 was bad. This was Japan with a monsoon. So imagine how much rain was coming out of the sky and it was around the mountains. So it was, they did like 20 laps behind the safety car. It was something ridiculous. It was just crazy. But yeah, then he, made, he got that move to McLaren. And sometimes you find with drivers and you see it like with footballers as well, when they move to a, a big team and there's big expectation, you think this is either going to make them or break them. And it, it kind of broke Hake Kovalainen, unfortunately, because there was a lot of expectation. He had a really, really strong teammate in Lewis Hamilton and he couldn't cut it. He lucked into his only victory. You know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And on that day, it was better to be lucky than good mm-hmm. because uh, Massa's engine blew up. And, you know, the 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 infamous words of Ron Dennis of uh, the first of many, Hakey. Yeah. And it wasn't. It was the only one and he never came close again. And then, yes, he had uncompetitive machinery, but when he was with uh, the Lotus team, the, the startup Lotus team, he drove fairly well. And I think he showed a bit better in that car than Yano truly did, who was also a seasoned uh, driver, someone else who'd had a, a really promising young career and failed to achieve. So in that sense, he was definitely quicker than, than than truly and according to aws and their many algorithms he's in the top 10 of fastest drivers in formula one well yeah the less said about that the better <laughs> slapped away with disdain there yes no i'm not even going to acknowledge that they just but yeah <laughs> only three seasons in formula one in in cars that were capable of scoring points so perhaps we are being a little harsh on him but uh but I mean, he, he got the same finishing position in 2007 as he did in 2008. And in 2008, he was in by far the best machinery on the grid, which just it's just insane. And then to score less points in, in 2009, I know that 2009 McLaren was, was not very good, but, but just generally, I just, he just flattered to disappoint every single time he was, he was in a, in a strong position. Like you say, he lucked into that, to that one win. And, uh, and we came so close. We came so close to unanimity here. Everybody on Grid Talk has put him down as overrated, except for you, Jared. Jared, you need to be ashamed of yourself. Fairly viewed. In what reality is Hoki Kovalainen fairly viewed? So anyway, on that rather, um, yeah, again, still a world-class driver, still better than me. But uh, on that rather sombre note, we've um, that's our ratings for the best nearly men in Formula One over the last few decades. There are a few drivers we didn't mention, mainly because neither of us wanted to talk about Pastor Maldonado. But you can have your say in the comments and uh, let us know your thoughts and opinions. We do read all of them and we love a good debate, but just please keep it civil. We respect everyone's opinion, so please offer us the same courtesy and also anyone else who comments as well. We're all entitled to our opinions and uh, we love to hear them, but just, just respect other people's as well. You can follow us on Twitter at F1 Chronicle and I am at Tom Horrocks if you want to follow me for some weird reason Aaron tell us about you and uh, all your endeavours uh, I do quite a lot actually I uh, run the Five Red Lights F1 podcast so you can find that on uh, all podcast platforms on YouTube follow me uh, at five underscore red underscore lights uh, for the Five Red Lights Insta you can uh, for Twitter even you can follow me on Twitter for my personal one at uh, Aaron Harper 41 five red lights on Instagram. Um, I have a website 
<laughs> I could go on and on, but I'll keep it short there. But yeah, there's loads of stuff going on. I write for F1 Chronicle. I write for Inside F2. Uh, I do podcasts like this. I love motorsport. So, you know, if you want to chat motorsport, hit me up. Fantastic. And thank you for coming on. And thank you to our audience as well. We will be back on Saturday for the preview of the Austrian Grand Prix in Spielberg. We look forward to seeing you then. Thank you and goodbye.